Hey, now say now you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, at the Living the Dream Studios. And today, we got a special guest also joining us from right here in the city of Portland, Oregon. He is a Portland Trailblazers reporter at NBC Sports Northwest. He is also the host of the Locked On Blazers podcast. So y'all know what we getting in here to today. Mike Richmond, man, appreciate you for joining me here on the Wake Up and Win podcast. Glad we could reconnect too, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a minute since we've got to chat. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be back, excited to get into it after what was a pretty wild Tuesday night in old Blazer land. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I just got to check in with you before we get into the madness of last night, because the last time you and I spoke, we were on the airways back when I was on these here Portland airways. And uh, you kind of shadowed me, man, because I made this wild, crazy prediction that three and a half years ago, the Phoenix Suns would make it to the playoffs. It took them three and a half years, but I certainly was off base back then <laughs> when I made the prediction. <laughs> and you had to put me in my place, man, and let me know, uh, give it some time. Yeah, well, they needed to add a Hall of Famer. I think Phoenix actually might have made the playoffs last year. DeAndre Ayton missed 25 games with the yeah. uh, PED suspension. They might have been a playoff team last year if they had had him for the first 25 games of the season, particularly because the season was only 65 games long. Right. Uh, but, you know, they um, typically, unfortunately, the way it works in the NBA is that the underclass stays the underclass. It kind of, um, for the most part, mirrors our effed up society here in the United States is that the rich stay rich. Um, yeah. And the, so the, the, the um, teams that are, you know, middle-class and below struggle a bunch and Phoenix had to wait until they could, uh, they could just get things right and get Chris Paul on board and have Devin Booker mature. And here they are. You were yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, three and a half years later. <laughs> and just to be fair at the time we were doing like predictions on the entire NBA season. So it's like, all the individual awards and things like that. And then we decided, hey, let's just make a wild card prediction. Like, what's the wildest shit that we could say on the airwaves? And that was what I had to say was that the Phoenix Suns <laughs> will make the playoffs back then. But they're doing their thing now. But we'll get a little bit more into that here in a few as we kind of expand out to the NBA playoffs at large. But we got to start with last night, Mike Richmond. Oh, my goodness. Damian Lillard. So for starters, because I got so much that I want to unpack with last night with this organization, obviously with, with what we should see here in the next game or two, if necessary. But for me, this is going to be kind of some blazer therapy that you got to do with me here, because I think that was the third greatest individual performance I ever saw from Damian Lillard. I think it was the third greatest. I would say so, number three. Number one, number one's got to be the game when he hit the game winner over Paul George because the game winner was so monumental and he still had 50 points in that yeah. game. Number two would have to be the performance last year in the bubble that made it to the J. Cole album when he went from 62 points and there was nothing that he wanted more <laughs> in his own <laughs> words. And then I would have to say yesterday was number three. And the reason I got to say it was number three was solely because they lost. But my goodness, man, what a guy. What a guy. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about sort of, you know, while I'm while it's happening, the great playoff performances I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, 
you know, Kobe with 50 in game six against Phoenix is certainly up there. LeBron James scoring 25 points, consecutive points against the Pistons in 2004. Yeah. Um, or 2007, rather, uh, when he had 48. Uh, that's up there. That might be the best performance I've ever seen, like, just like considering my age and all of those things. Um, right. I've watched Jordan score 63 on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, yeah, same, but that's same. a little bit different. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I think that's up there. Other Dame performances that kind of are in the in the conversation for me, um, the the game in Staples right after Kobe passed. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good as, one. That was just fantastic. It's not. It's a regular season game. It's not the same thing, obviously, than like the bubble games and that stuff. But it's up there. I I think for me, this is probably. If it's not his best game, it's it's number two behind the OKC bad shot game. Like it's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's up there for me. I, I I think I think he was close to perfect. Like he was close. The to first perfect. twenty minutes, they didn't play any defense, and he was a big part of that. But after midway through the second quarter, he clearly was like, "Okay, I'm screwing up. I'll play some defense." And while he was doing that, he already had twenty, and then yeah. he had twenty two in in. Basically, from the three-minute mark of the fourth quarter to the end of the game, he went nuts. Like, he had a full game in the final 13 minutes of this one. This is as good as – this is close to a perfect game. It's close to a perfect offensive game that he could play. Absolutely, absolutely. My, my question is this, though, because I, coming into this series, predicted it would be Blazers in seven. So, based on what my prediction was, I think they're right exactly where they need to be. Obviously, you know, you got to win a home game, which I, I would bank on them having the ability to be able to do that here tomorrow night. And then you got to go back to Denver for game seven. And I feel like we can have another one of those moments like we had a couple years ago where home court doesn't quite matter as much. Game seven is ultimately about who wants it more. That's just what those things come down to. So I, I'm, I'm confident in my stance that I took prior to this series. But what does this series mean for the Blazers in regards to going forward, not just obviously in this postseason, but beyond this postseason? Because I feel like the implications are a lot bigger than, the, than them just being eliminated by the Denver Nuggets here in the postseason in the first round. Like, we could see an entirely new restructure of this organization if they don't get past this series here what are your kind of thoughts on that? What do you, what do you see happening here? Well, I, I think it's been pretty widely reported by a couple different places that if Terry Stotts doesn't go on a run here in the playoffs, if the Blazers don't go on a run here in the playoffs with Terry Stotts at the helm, then he's probably done. His tenure in Portland is probably over. Um, certainly a first-round loss to the Nuggets um, would qualify under not a run. Um, that, that would be in the not a run category. Absolutely. So I, think, I think that's – the, that would be the end of of the coach this coaching staff, which has been pretty good. But sometimes you just things run their course over nine years at, and in one spot. Um, I I think it would mean strongly considering big trades, like for Yusuf Nurkic and CJ McCollum. I don't know how easy it is to trade CJ McCollum. Like I don't know, considering what the Blazers would want and need in return. I don't know if you can just do that. Um, I, certainly, they would probably explore it. It would probably mean the, the end of um, the experiment with Car Carmelo Anthony, the end of uh, Ennis Cantor's run here. Uh, it might mean they move on from Norman Powell. Um, it's it could be a lot of things. I don't think there's a change coming in the front office. Neil Olshay is going to have this job. Um, he has a, he signed a contract extension through 2024. Yeah. Um, if you pay close attention to this team, nothing 
nothing about the way they do business suggests that they're going to pay someone to not do the job for three seasons. Yeah. They're going the other direction. They're going, they're, they are getting cheaper and, 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 and in a lot of different avenues, they're getting cheaper. So I, Neil's not in trouble in, in my eyes. Um, but there could be some other big moves and, um, and it, it could include pretty much everyone on the roster other than Damian Lamont, Ollie Lillard senior. You got to give it the full government, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, you obviously mentioned CJ McCollum there and I feel like he's been a bit underwhelming in these here playoffs to this point. Um, and quite frankly, alluding back to that run that you spoke of, he has to be the guy that we saw prior to the foot injury this season that was averaging 26.7 points per game up to that point for the Blazers to have any chance at a run, in my opinion. Um, how much pressure is on CJ? Because obviously, you know, you got the social media folks that are giving him a hard time. You got his brother coming to he and the Blazers defense on Twitter. Um, I don't have the tweet right in front of me, but he's essentially telling folks to calm down and, and believe in the team. They've been in this spot before. If you don't believe in them, go be a bandwagoner elsewhere. I feel like that had a little bit to do with him defending little bro, but I don't know. Um, how important has this series now become or this next game? And if necessary, two games, how important does that become for CJ McCollum in all of this? Um, you know, he hasn't been good, but I don't think to me, I, I, this this might be like the larger context. If they lose, they'll consider trades, right? Like let's, right, right, right. let's just throw that out there. Like they'll consider it. They'll For sure. the front office will explore it. But to me, if you're using this series as proof of CJ like not being the guy, I think you're missing the point. Quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, the he he has bona fides. You can you know um, check the tape. In 2019, he was the best player in the second round series against the against the Denver Nuggets and delivered 37 in a game seven to get the Western Conference Finals. The best finish they've had in two decades. They don't do it without CJ. He's the guy. Check the tape. But also. There's a lot of evidence that maybe having two six foot three dudes be your two best players is really hard to win in the league. Right. I don't think this series has anything to do with that. That's okay. a thing you could have known for three years. So if you're using this series to be like, CJ's got to go, this is proof. I think you're missing the point. You either weren't on board before and you're jumping on a bandwagon with the wrong kind of data, or you forgot about what happened in 2019. You can be right. You may have reached the right conclusion. The Blazers should try to trade CJ because blah, 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 blah. They'd be better with a taller, better defender at that spot. But if you're using a 7 for 22, 18-point performance in game five as proof of that concept, you are doing it wrong, my friends. I like that outlook, Mike Richmond. I like that outlook. Now, here's another thing. Like I said, my head has been all over the place. I I'm not quite understanding. I I I'm at war with myself, essentially. You look at Damian Lillard, we obviously talked about the performance he had last night, and we knew who Damian Lillard was coming into this series. Then you look at Joker, who's probably going to win MVP this year, and also played lights out last night for what it's worth. I mean, it got yeah. outshined by that of Damian Lillard, but the guy had nearly a, what, 38-point triple-double. He's one assist away. Yeah, dude, he had 38, he had 38, uh, 11, and 9 with four blocks. And it's like, nice. oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, cool, cool. exactly. So, so my question is, because I've been trying to figure this one out too, who's the best player in this series? My heart says Dame. My allegiance would more so say Dame. But – 
it's hard for me to say that anybody is better than Nikola Jokic right now. Who's the best player in this series? I, I think it's Jokic by a hair. I mean, what we saw last night in Denver was spectacular. Like, that was as good an individual performance as you'll ever see. Like, we're talking about it as like, yo, this is one of the four or five greatest individual offensive performances in the history of, of the playoffs in the NBA, right? And then you look at the other side, like, damn, he really had 38, 11, and nine with four blocks. Yeah. Um, the way I was thinking about this, and I talked, I spoke with someone about this with the Blazers, is like the difference in this series is that the Blazers' best player is easier to guard than the Nuggets' best player. Ah. And that's matchup specific. That's yeah. like it's specific. Like the Nuggets have more answers for Dame than the, than the Blazers have for Jokic. Um, I think Jokic is a little bit better. And, and some of that is just like being tall is always more valuable. Um, Devon, you're way taller than me. If we were yeah. going to pick up hoops, they'd be picking you first. They I wouldn't agree. say, you I know agree. that little five, seven dude, let's, let's, you know, maybe he's feisty. let's see what he's got. Like, it's just being bigger is more valuable. Uh, you just, you can be more impactful on defense. Jokic has real limitations on there, but he, I don't think he's bad on defense yeah. by any means. He's just kind of below average to above average. He's somewhere in yeah. that range. Um, you can't really explore him dame's limitations you know he just there is a size thing um but i also want to say this like if people are like you know listening if you've got a like a heavy portland fan base hopefully it's bay area I, listening I, I, I got i got bay area listeners probably good. majority but right after it is portland right after good, it is good. Portland. so i was gonna say that the local <laughs> the local audience is gonna get on my ass at mike g rich on twitter um but, <laughs> but uh like i don't think it's a slight to say that dame is a little bit worse than the league mvp like, I don't think that's a slight. Dame was phenomenal, phenomenal in game five. He also had a one for 10 game that the Blazers won. And that was Jokic's down game. And he still probably had a little better statistical night than Dame. Um, he just wasn't as good. Like, it's, you could be, if you're the second best player in the series and the other dude is one of the top 10 players in the league, you're doing fine. Yeah, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing fine. Definitely. Um, Nurk, we got to talk about Nurk because the Oof. big fella obviously can't guard the MVP. He's fouled out in three games already. How important does he now become in these last two games? I mean, he's clearly been important because, you know, when he's played well, the Blazers tend to do better and they've won those games. You know, when he doesn't play so great and he fouls out and, and he gets limited minutes because he's in foul trouble, we've seen Denver win the game. Has he now become sort of like the single most important player in this series based on how things have played out? Yeah, I mean, it's just – it's you just – you can know what's going to happen. Did Nurk play well? If it, if Check yes. That's a win. That's a yeah. win for the old pinwheels. If, if, if it's Nurk didn't play well, see ya. Um, I thought game – I thought game five was pretty disappointing for Yusuf Nurkic, like in a lot of ways. He was awesome in game four. He was probably the best player on the court in game four. Um, he was, you know, there's there's two seven-footers from the Balkans on there. One of them is league MVP, and one of them is Yusuf Nurkic, and the other one, Yusuf Nurkic, was the best player <laughs> on the court in game four, the most dominant player on yeah. game four. If you were just pointing on the map, which dude, which dude from around here was the best, was, uh, you know, which dude on a country that borders Croatia was the best player in game four. Um, <laughs> that's a little geography, free geography. Field. I like um, it. I like it. I like it. We need it. <laughs> but, but in game five, he didn't, he just didn't, he wasn't locked in. He didn't have the focus. And so much of Nurk, it seems to be just a mental focus. I'm not saying like he's, it, it's like all mental for him. There's some skill stuff, like just making layups is a skill thing, but like, it seems to me to be pretty clear that you can know early in a game, is Nurk making good decisions, smart decisions, or is Nurk kind of, does he seem like he's kind of just floating and, and going through the motions and stuff? I thought 
His fourth and sixth fouls were just stupid, stupid. Um, And he has to be smarter than that. His fourth foul was in the third quarter when he bowled over Jokic and got called for an offensive foul. Um, You could say uh, Jokic flopped. Yeah. You could say Jokic flopped. It was a good call. Well, no shit, man. Yeah. No shit. He's going to flop. He's going to flop. That's Absolutely. What he's going to do. 100%. You, you, hit him with the shoulder, you hit him with the shoulder once, he's ready for the second shoulder, and when it hits him, he's going to let you hit you square in the chest, and he's going to fall down. And it's the NBA. You fall down, go boom, they're going to blow a whistle. They're going to blow a whistle. It's just it's how the league works. You have to know. You have to be smarter. That was stupid. And then he had to sit for most of the third quarter until the four-minute mark or to the five-minute mark of the, of the fourth, came back in, got a pretty whack fifth foul on the, on the dribble handoff where they call screen, it for a moving yeah, screen. I remember that. Pretty yeah. whack call. Right, um, right. You know, whatever. But, like, you're going to get those. That's, how, that's also how the league works. Yeah. And then he came down on the other end, and instead of giving up a dunk, he just has to let that one go. To he Aaron decided Gordon. to contest Aaron Gordon at the win. As if rim, he I could mean. do that anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. like Aaron Gordon is still like a, a, a slighted dunk champion. He should have been a dunk champion. That's yeah. obviously why Ar- he... Archbishop Mitty. Oh, yeah. You know about it. You know about it. <laughs> I'm San Jose. <laughs> I actually played against Aaron Gordon. And not in a... It was in summer league, but I, I played against him um, when I was at Rodriguez High School and, and he was playing for Archbishop Mitty in the summer league that year. He was like a freshman when I was a junior. Uh, so yeah, I, I got to see how bouncy the guy really is. Yeah. His brother was a beast at Archbishop Midi as well, Drew Gordon. Drew Gordon, uh, yeah. Drew Gordon went on to play at I believe New Mexico or New Mexico State. Yeah, New um, Mexico, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he was a monster too. So they definitely run the town over there in that San Jose area. But yeah, you ain't blocking Aaron Gordon's dunk anyway, Nurkic. You got five fouls and you're trying to d- block the dunk of. I almost said the leapiest guy in the series, but then Derek Jones and Anthony Simons might have something to say. <laughs> the leapiest dude who gets to play. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the leapiest dude who gets to play. But yeah, that was just an absolutely dumb foul. So um, yeah, I, I believe that he is probably the single most important player in this series. How do you feel going into Game Six? Do you feel like you know? Do, do I feel, you feel like, like it's classic nerd to- accurate. Yeah, I feel like it's a classic Nurk to bounce back in game six, play well, play smart, be locked in, know what he did wrong, all these things, like to really have it. And then in game seven, it's who who effing knows. Like who it's effing just, knows, yes. Just who, <laughs> it's just who could possibly tell, you know? it's You just don't – the difference in a good players and great players is consistency, and it's a mental consistency. And yeah. if if he could lock in and play at a high level for – every night he would be a different player like he would just be a different guy he's not that um and it's a challenge it's a challenge the blazers have to live with is they don't know which nurk they're going to get and like you could put that on coaching you can put that on other leadership but i think it's a personal responsibility thing he has to know he has to know what he means to the team and what him being on the floor means to the team and he has to not you're going to get fouls you're going to get roasted by Jokic. all those things are going to happen you just need to find a way to still be on the floor it. when it matters. Just be because, there. Yeah, because look Presence what Dame is, is doing. Yeah. Look what Dame is doing. Yeah. Like, he's going to give you a chance, so give him a chance too. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, I want to transition away from the Blazers here a little bit, and I want to talk about um, the madness of these fans and what they've <laughs> returned to do since um, you know being away from society for, what, a year and a half or so? Um, a little bit over a year. But, um, man, what, what are just some of your general thoughts on 
all the nastiness that we're seeing from fans in arenas across the country right now? Well, I think some of it is a year cooped up inside. Um, it's I call got it, everybody. I call it institutionalization. I feel like yeah. folks are institutionalized to an extent. You know, we obviously talk about that, you know, talk about that when it comes to folks who actually get incarcerated. But I think, you know, this has that kind of a feel maybe. Yeah, and people let out and don't know how to act or don't want to or, or or just, you know, have kind of come to their 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 end. But I also think there is an undeniable racial element to this. Yeah. The people who are doing the bad actors in this case are white men almost exclusively, to my mind, exclusively. I, I haven't like looked at every single person who's been arrested. But when I see the people on Twitter, it's white dudes. Yeah. And. I don't think it's a coincidence that this league spent most of last summer protesting for the rights of black people to live a decent human life. And when they get fans back in the building, it's a bunch of white guys throwing bottles at them and say, nope, you're still just a player to me. Yeah. Like that's it. There's an undeniable racial element. This isn't the NBA's racist fans and America's racist just existence playing itself out in front of us in a way that we can't deny. I don't yeah. know how you police it out. We're talking like 400 years of bullshit, but like, but it's, it's just undeniable. It's, it is, it is just, it is a, it is a disgusting part of what fandom and what you think rooting for someone wearing the Jersey you, you like or dislike gives you the right to do. And the people who feel most emboldened to act that way are white men. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. And even if you look at the players in particular that we've seen some of these nasty moments with Russell Westbrook was one of the guys on the front lines last year. Trey Young was out on the front lines speaking at protests last year. John Morant, you know, a, another one who was on the front lines. In fact, I remember he, I don't remember exactly what he said, but if I recall, he had a tweet that he had to apologize for. Yeah, he wanted to wear a fuck 12 jersey. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what happened. He wanted to wear a fuck 12 jersey last year in the bubble. And he tweeted out that that's what he wanted to wear. And, and obviously, that's when I think they kind of cracked down on what the statements actually could be right. on the players' jerseys in the bubble last year. So you had that, um, you know, who, yeah. So those three guys for sure. And Kyrie Irving, and who's Kyrie Irving, outspoken. Who's absolutely. Yeah. The, the most outspoken guy probably to this point, you know, this season in, in regards to social issues because there certainly has kind of been a, a drop off a little bit just because of the moment in time that we were in while these players were in the bubble. But Kyrie has not let up one single bit. So, like, when you correlate the actions that are taking place to the victims that essentially they're taking place to, it, it, there's no denying really that there's a racial element there. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just – it it is it is – part of our everyday existence and our sickness as a country and you just we are just seeing it play out in these in a very public way in a in a, in a quite frankly a way that you know you you want to say oh it's you know guys getting drunk and all this but it's not it's people it's people who've always wanted to do this who are finally just back out of their houses a year a, a year after and doing it like it's yeah um it's it's gross. I mean, it's really, it's, it's gross and depressing. And you just, you just, I mean, I, I don't want to say like, I'm thankful it hasn't happened in Portland because it's not like it doesn't exist here. I live here. I know how it goes. Um, but like, it's, it's getting to a point where, where it's more notable that it hasn't happened into in an arena than that, that it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking at the rest of the playoffs here, the, the, the NBA landscape at large, and let's kind of just stick with the Western conference. Um, 
obviously the throne is being challenged. Uh, you got the Phoenix Suns up 3-2 over the Lakers right now. Um, obviously, you know, we spoke about this Blazer Nuggets series. And I feel like, you know, the Clippers, you know, they're tied 2-2 two two right now with Luka. That series can go in either which direction. Um, just kind of based on what you're seeing in the Western Conference, is this the most wide open that this conference has been in regards to who will actually come out of the West this year and play in the NBA Finals than you've seen in maybe, I'd say, like 10 years or so? It feels like a it's while. a while. A while, for sure. Prior, to the, 20... prior to the Warriors dynasty, which was 2015. 2015. So maybe that 2015 playoffs was the last time when you went in and you said anybody could win. But I also think you meant anybody could win as long as they have Tim Duncan on their team. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, at the time it felt like kind of inevitable that maybe the Spurs would do it again. And, and then there would be and, and and there were some other good teams for sure. But I think I think it's as wide open as it's been since 2015. Uh, even Utah. Best team in the yeah. NBA this year, yeah. best record in the league. They have been tested by a really good Memphis team. Absolutely. Um, you know, they look – they look. Utah both looks like a really good basketball team and also a team with flaws who's beatable. Yeah, um, absolutely. The Clippers look like a team that could fold up and go home at any moment, but they also look like talented enough to just straight up win the whole dang thing. So who knows what yeah. group you'll get with them every night. Uh the Lakers still have LeBron James. It's hard to count them out when he's around. They look human. Like, they look bad, quite frankly. Uh, they got housed by the Suns. Um, and the Suns, you know, you want to believe. You want to say, like, this team can play. But Chris Paul's health is a big question mark. So, yeah. I don't think I don't think if you've watched as much basketball as, as the two of us that you can yeah. confidently say, here's the team who's the favorite in the West. Like, yeah. even now, even now at the four or five game mark. Like, I don't think you could pick a favorite. You could pick some teams that maybe look a little vulnerable, but I don't think you could sit here and say, like, the Clippers are definitely going to win or the Jazz are definitely going to win the West. Yeah, I think, you know, every team has looked vulnerable to this point in the playoffs. And that's sure. what the most interesting – in the Western Conference in particular I'm speaking of. Um, yeah, every team has looked vulnerable in the West. You know, you mentioned it and kind of gave the layout for all of these teams, and there's no team that could be the hand-picked favorite as of right now, where you kind of could like generally agree that that would be the case. But now taking it over to the Eastern Conference, I think we got essentially what is going to be the Eastern Conference finals happening in the Eastern Conference yep. semifinals round with that of the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. Whoever wins that series is coming out of the East as far as I'm concerned. Um, what yep. are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously we know the, the talent and the firepower that the Nets have, but this is looking like the most complete Milwaukee Bucks team surrounding that of Giannis Antetokounmpo that we've seen to date. Yeah, I wish my boy Big Ragu didn't get hurt. Dante DiVincenzo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, wish he had, I wish he'd been healthy because um, he's, he's – I mean, it's weird to say, like, this role player is so key, but just, like, having another – guy who can guard guards when you're playing against the Nets is going to be so good. But the, the, the Bucks, they, you know, they went all in and you got to commend it for them. They said, if, if Giannis stays, if he agrees to stay, we are going to do everything we possibly can to be good while he's here to make it right for him. They trade a boatload of picks to get Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday kicks ass. They're better. Yeah. Uh, Chris Middleton has taken a step forward. He struggled in the playoffs in the past. I think it's a really, really, really big series for him against Brooklyn to prove that he's, He's like one of those dudes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Giannis is still Giannis and he's improving a little bit. Um, he's, you know, he's 
he's adding a playmaking element to his game that maybe he didn't have in the past. Like he's, he's adding some new facets. Like he's an MVP who probably was better back-to-back MVP who might've been better this season than in the past. Like that's, that's how good he is. Um, and then on the other side, like those dudes are as good a collection of talent as we have seen in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. As good as a group of we've seen probably since LeBron James heat, the early heat days. Yeah. Um, the, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden can beat literally anyone in the league. Occasionally they look like they're sleepwalking. Occasionally they look like they're just, <laughs> they're just cold chilling. Yeah. Um, they have a real, they have a real pickup run vibe to them. That's like, we know that we're going to win all these games, but we'll mess around and win 15, 11 because who cares? Like we just want to hoop. Right. Um, I don't know if you can sleepwalk against a team as good as Milwaukee. I agree. I agree. Do you ultimately pick them to overcome Milwaukee, though? Or do you think this might just be the gear film for Milwaukee? Especially oh. when you think about that Drew, that, that, that Drew Holiday, man. Like, we obviously know, we've we seen him in the postseason against the Blazers and how yeah. tough of a time he gave Damon CJ, you know, in the backcourt. Obviously, now you're facing off against Kyrie and Harden, but – I think he's a very significant pickup, obviously, on that side of the ball and can still score it. Sort of gives the sort of gives the Bucks a big three element when you include Chris Middleton and obviously Giannis in that conversation as well. Like this is probably the closest thing the East has to a big three, or really maybe even the NBA at large has to a big three outside of the Brooklyn Nets. Right. Right. With all due respect to uh Dame, CJ, and Norman Powell. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I am. I am a big believer that it's a talent league, and that talent wins. And yeah. I think Brooklyn just has too much talent. Agreed. Like the coaching stuff matters. The matchups really matter. Matchups really matter, and that's why I was I was shouting out my boy Big Ragu because I think Dante Divincenzo could could be another problem to throw at Kyrie Irving uh and, and the Nets occasionally just play crap defense for long stretches but I think I mean James Harden is a is a force Kevin Durant is one of the greatest players that we've ever seen play yeah. this sport like what he's doing at age 32 coming off an Achilles he's still one of the best scorers in the league he's an effortless like MVP level scorer yeah I I roll with Brooklyn but I am nervous I am nervous about the pick yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to transition away from basketball just a little bit here, though, because um, obviously we've had big news with Naomi Osaka and her withdrawing herself from the French Open, um, being that she's been dealing with mental health issues and essentially did not want to speak to press. Um, as a reporter, though, where do you kind of stand on this? Obviously, we know how important mental health issues are, but you're somebody, you know, that that this is a huge part of your job, being a part of these press conferences and, and these post-game pressers. Um, where do you kind of stand on all of this? Because, like I said, I feel as people within the industry, um, we have to kind of navigate through this in our own type of a way. So where does Mike Richmond stand at this very moment on this situation? You know, I respect and appreciate that Naomi Osaka says, I gotta, I gotta get out. And here's yeah. why I gotta get out like that. The, the strength and the honesty to say, um, you guys wear me down <laughs> and I yeah. can't take it being worn down by you folk is relatable and, yep. and believable. Um, sometimes my colleagues in the press wear me the hell down. To the 
Um, <laughs> That's real. <laughs> um, but the relationship between press and, and I don't know tennis as well, quite frankly, but right. I, I can Neither speak to I. what I know, um, sure. which is, which is covering the NBA for seven years or so. Yeah. Uh, you need, you need that relationship between the press and the media or the press and players, because you, the things that are asked in that press conference are the things that fuel the blogs. They're the things that Stephen A. Smith is yelling about. He, he doesn't get, he's not going to the media availability and asking questions. That's, that's, you know, that's people on the, on the beat, on the everyday grind of the BS. Absolutely. That said, that said, there are some shitty questions that are asked at press conferences. <laughs> There are people who probably don't deserve a credential who are given a chance to do so and embarrass yeah. themselves. There are people that are get in press conferences and ask a question to make sure that their name is called and all those things. Um, there are people who, and then there are people who mine the press conferences for wonderful quotes and ask insightful questions and all those things. There's people who do a really good job at it. Um, Everyone who works the beat and everyone who, who, who goes to these things will tell you that they don't want more press conferences. They want more one-on-ones, more access, more talking to humans like humans. That's yeah. what everyone wants, right? Like that's what everyone wants. They want to they wanna say, hey, do you have a second? Damian Lillard, let's chat. Like you're, a, you're an adult. I'm an adult. Can I ask you some questions like that? Yeah. I'm not in these formal transactional ways that media has to do it through press conferences, but that's, that's the nature of the business. I also think there are several things at work here. One, people with big old platforms and email addresses that end with things like New York Times and ESPN, you're going to get calls back. People are going to yeah. email you back and call you back. You don't need the press conference the way that someone like me does when I was a young reporter. Right. I need it. Yeah. That's my best access. Absolutely. That's the way I'm going to tell a story, right? Like that's how I'm going to do it. Um, also, I think there is a younger faction of reporters coming up now who've never had access and they've, they've done it on the internet on their own with the grind. They've pulled film off of, off of the game that they're watching on their computer. They've broken down stats. They're deep into deep coverage of the team without ever having access. And they see it as less fruitful. But there is, there is some truth to the media really having some brutal press etiquette and some truth to the absolute necessity to keep interest in the league and keep the stories going that we need these things. I don't think that you can look at what happened with Naomi and, and say, here's what we should do. I think it's more nuanced than a lot of different things. Like I think, I just think there are, there is, there is, it's hard to draw a firm conclusion, which is kind of why I'm filibustering right now and giving you all my thoughts, because I think oh, there's I, just, I think there's a lot that goes into it. For sure, for sure. No, and I really wanted that because, you know, obviously this is a very important topic. And like I said, your expertise being a reporter for a while. And and then also, you know, you mentioned, and same here, I don't know much about, about tennis either, excuse me. But at the same token, she's getting a lot of support from the guys that you do cover. Damian Lillard being one of those guys who has come out and publicly supported her. The John Morant, totally. Steph Curry's. We're seeing these athletes from other sports that are supporting her. So clearly they deal with something similar that she deals with as well. So I do think this is a conversation that is now going to be you know, opened up across the entire sports landscape rather than just tennis, even though it kind of broke out through Naomi Osaka, who happens to be like arguably the greatest tennis player in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's where it'll start. I, part of me worries that this is an excuse to give people less access and less access doesn't make it better. 
less yeah. access won't make it better. Uh, if Can you preferred- elaborate on that a little bit? Because I agree with you 100%, but obviously, like I said, th- there's conversations happening that are like all over the place right now. And yeah, elaborate yeah. on that. Well, I think athletes have every right to say sometimes like, man, I get in here, I play, I I do my job, I I bust my ass, and then I have to answer stupid ass questions from the press. I get it, right? But if the solution is that they never answer questions, you get... One, you just get the fans are, are not as close to the team. And two, it becomes only the access, only the certain sort of um, what do I want to call them? Uh, information mongerers. Like if only the info comes from Shams Charania, yeah. you're only getting one side of the story. You're Absolutely. not getting as deep or as close and you're getting it curated for what a certain side wants to hear representation or the GM or whatever the hell like you need the access one. It makes it makes players more human, uh, having them more be more human. Uh, you know, it, it leads to more, I don't know, positive marketing. It leads to them being um, it just it, it the narrative adds to what makes the sports popular. And yeah. if you have less access, you have less narrative. You know less about these people. And then it'll only be controlled by either uh, the players agents or the teams that run the team and the teams that, you know, these people play for, and you only get one side of the story. The best coverage of the team is always going to be independent journalists and independent journalists need the access to tell those stories. And like I said, some people don't need the press conferences. They got everybody's phone number. They got a special email address. Someone will email them back. They'll call them back. They'll get the interview, but there are young people and great writers who need the access and we have to allow them to have the access to allow that next generation to tell the stories. Can we do a better job? Yeah. Yes. Good Lord. Yes. Yeah. But, but we can't, if, if the solution here is just to shut it off entirely, we've made them, we've gone down, we've gone in the wrong direction. I agree. I I agree. I agree with you there a hundred percent. What about the mental health aspect of it? Like, when do we allow these players maybe to not have to report to a press conference? Because I've heard conversations around like, you know, a player doesn't have to go to to a practice if they are physically injured or if they have something physically going on. Does this mean that maybe sports across the world needs to invest more in like clinical treatment when it comes to mental health and mental illness for us to be able to know like, hey, this person probably shouldn't be doing any type of public speaking right now. That's already a scary thing to do for most people in in, in general society, but they're now doing it when they are like, you know, dealing with some type of clinical depression. Like, should these sports entities start looking at clinical mental health work as a thing, the same way in which they do physical, clinical, physical health work, you know, in regards to keeping their players treated and and making sure that they're okay to go out and perform on the floor or the field or the court or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like at least for like team sports, like the Blazers call their medical team, the health and performance staff and health should be holistic. Health yeah. should be holistic. It should include physical and mental health. There is probably a some sort of stigma that I think is going away of people getting mental health and being op- getting mental health uh, um, like checkups, meeting with a therapist, going through ther- going to therapy as just sort of like a regular part of their like human maintenance. Uh, I think that stigma is going away to some extent. Like I think more and more people like Naomi Osaka, people like Kevin Love, um, you know, have, have spoken out and said, you know, this this isn't 
we aren't unique, you know, basketball players and all these things are unique, but I still think there's a stigma. Um, particularly these are for the most part, like in the NBA, the league I'm most familiar with, it's a bunch of rich dudes in their twenties. Those are yeah. the people who seek out, who seek out, um, you know, mental health professionals. They right. should certainly, but, um, but it's, it, that's not like the market for generally people who go to therapy are not Agreed. Um, young guy if 24 year olds agree um, 100% i didn't do it so <laughs> so i think it should be i think it should be part of the team's approach um it's hard to put it on the injury report and stuff like that because it's it's a sensitive topic to say like oh you know he's not going to be available today cuz he has therapy you don't really want that to go out in a tweet um, right so right. i think there's i think you have to do it in a more you have to protect guys in a certain way um, yeah. and, and protect their privacy in a certain way. So I, I, you want it, I want to see it. I want it to be part of normal sports that mental, mental health and, and access to good mental health care is a, is a normal part of professional sports, but uh, it'll be tricky to integrate completely into sort of how they do it now, because to say like he needs, he's doing a little rehab on his elbow is not the same as he's doing a little rehab because he's, he's, he's depressed. Like he's right. having trouble. Yeah, anxious, all of those things. Um, I do a segment here called the six-man segment where essentially I ask you just a question about like a general topic, just asking you to give me your top five in whatever subject I see fit. Usually that is right. dependent upon the guest. But sometimes people struggle to just narrow it down to five. So I give you that extra six man to incorporate on that list. That was like, you know, I really, really want to put them on my top five, but I just couldn't. So I'll give you the extra six man here um, for you. And I'll let you choose which direction that you want to go. Um, you're an NBA reporter. Matter of fact, I'm just going to go sports reporters at large. Um, give me your top five sports reporters of all time. And then obviously you can give me a six man. If you feel like you want to just narrow that down to NBA reporters, that's fine too. But sports reporter at large is how I'm coming at this. Okay. I think my favorite, um, I think my favorite NBA writer of all time is Lee Jenkins. Okay. And I'm still mad that Lee Jenkins works for the Clippers. Yeah. God damn it. Lee. <laughs> Uh, he wrote for Sports <laughs> Illustrated for a long time. He's an all-time great. Um, he's he's just he's the best. Like he's just he's. I love his stories. Um, if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with Lee Jenkins, Google Lee Jenkins Dwayne Casey. It's an incredible profile of Dwayne Casey. Got it. Um, others I really love. Like I I I got to shout out my guy Jason Quick, who's covering yeah. the Blazers forever. Um, Absolutely, like a real life a real life friend of mine, but also just a one of the great beat reporters in America. Um, Absolutely, just, he is. Gets, gets people really close to the game um, in a way that that you always want to be. Uh, I'll also say Katie Heindel, um, an up and comer. She's she writes for Uproxx and Dime. Um, I think she's I think she's the best young basketball writer in America. Um, really. I, okay. I, she is incredible. Um, subscribe to Basketball Feelings. That's her. Uh, that's her. Her. Her, um, her newsletter. It's. It's. It's really, really good. Um, she just has a way of making people human. And yeah. like I said, it's what I love is is finding out who the humans are. Um, who else is Who else is on the list? Oh man, put me on the spot here. Yeah, that's um, what we do here. 
You know, I, I would probably say, like, if we're talking all time, all time, that David Aldridge would be on there. Okay. Um, he's probably four or five. I don't know if these are in order exactly. But no, 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 no there. particular order. No particular order. Yeah, I think those are, I think all those guys are on there. Like, I think, I think David Aldridge, because of his ability to go to TV, he was incredible as, as a sideline reporter on television. Like, he got you, he, he did real and tough interviews in real time. Um, he's, he's fantastic. So, so those are my, those are, I'm at four now. It's like, uh-oh, yeah, four. So you get two more. Um, you see how tough it gets. That's why I wanted to give you the six man. Cause just five makes it tough. So I'm giving you an extra body here. <laughs> um, so I'll go Zach low for five. Okay. Um, the he's, he's a nerd's dream. He's a nerd's dream. Like I'm a nerd. He's a, he's a nerd's dream. Um, he just, he brings you the numbers and the analysis and all that stuff. And he's got really good sources and he's connected. Yeah. And, and for six, I'm going to go Marin Fader. She works for um, the ringer now, but she's like one of the great profiling um, profile writers in, in the country. She just, she wrote a great piece on LaMelo ball um, before anyone else knew about LaMelo ball. She was in Lithuania tracking 16 year old LaMelo and giving you an insight into what it was like. Like she's, she's awesome. She just wrote a book about Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I think I like, some of these are just like straight up writers versus reporters, but there's a lot of reporting that goes into it. So I think that's, I think that's my six. Uh, nice. Lee Jenkins, Jason Quick, Katie Heindel, David Aldridge, and excuse me, and Marin Fader. Nice, nice. Well, appreciate you, man, for coming on here and joining me on the Wake Up and Win podcast. I'm glad we can reconnect. And don't be surprised if I reach out to you again, man. And I'm, I'm glad the timing worked out because I attempted to get you on here last week, which I knew you were busy, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I knew you were busy as we were going into the postseason. But, I mean, timing couldn't have worked any better having you on this week because – Obviously, the performance of Damian Lillard. We're later on in the series, so you know. Yeah, yeah. The plot thickens a little bit here, man. So to be able to have you during this time worked out great. And like I said, I will be reaching out again to have you here on the podcast, man. Well, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's good to be back on the airwaves chatting with you. So let's let's do it again soon. Oh yeah, we'll keep it rocking. On that note, we'll leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win. Yeah.